0: If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General
1: Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman.
0: I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome Welcome to the the Calling calling History history podcast. Podcast.
1: In the last episode, we talked about Isabella deciding that a visit to the Pope was not only necessary, but also something that she could do if she needed advice on whether or not she was going to build a new house. We also learned about what inspired her to begin this worldwide treasure hunt. And we heard the hilarious story of her Japanese friend meeting an American donkey or Yankee, depending on, of course, what his answer was. In this episode, We'll talk about how she collected those pieces, some of her favorites, and what she thinks about the people who say she's rude.
0: As much as I possibly could, because I had a vision of which I wished to ascribe. So this vision was constant for me, and I sought to enforce it. Starting with the architect, I selected Mr. Willard Sears of a reputable firm, but If something was not done properly, I would ask Mr. Sears to strike it down and start again. (laughs) So he was often at his wit's end. And word traveled throughout Boston, as far west as Indiana, of Mrs. Gardner's Italian EYE palace. And I was even called the serpent of the muddy river. Now, that is because I had to have some landfill along the Muddy River because it was land that was being reclaimed, if you will, much like my Beacon Street property had been a few decades before. That's quite a nickname. Do People over the years have had
1: lots of nicknames for you. I know a lot of people called you Mrs. Jack, and I, I saw <laughs> one time there was a nickname... Uh, Uh, (laughs) Isabella Donna, I think, was one of the nicknames. Yeah. So tell me about Mr. Sears. Obviously, he did good work, but did you feel like he was keeping his end of the bargain with the work that he was doing?
0: Well, most of the time I did. And I will say that he tended to be more conservative than I. So that is why I often had to prod and push him in certain directions if we did not see eye to eye, because. From beginning to end, my vision needed to prevail.
1: It was going to be your way. That was end of the story.
0: Absolutely. Mr. Sears had not been to the Palazzo Paparo or really had ever visited Venice to any great extent. So he did not have the same insights and vision
1: as I did. By the way, as a side note, when you say that he was more conservative than you... Just to be clear, everybody's more conservative than you. Like we're all standing and watching you work and just going, okay, what are we supposed to do? She'll tell us. So it's not just him.
0: All right. If if you say uh, there are some people, I believe, who are more forward thinking than others, but we still leave that there. Did some people
1: find that your personality was rude?
0: Well, that is the difficult. Question to answer because beauty, as we know, is in the eye of the beholder. And it has been noted that I've been short tempered, if you will. All I can say to that on my behalf is that I do not suffer fools lightly. So if someone does not seek to meet me even halfway, that is when there is a clash until they have a more open mind or a more open approach to a situation or a resolution. I think what you're saying is
1: that as long as people acquiesce to what you're trying to accomplish, there's no reason to be rude to them. And you'll get along with everybody just fine.
0: Yes, that is another way to put it, Tony.
1: <laughs> so let's talk about the art. Here you are traveling around the world collecting these extraordinary pieces, and you probably you had to have some sort of criteria for acquiring these pieces, what were you looking for? How did you know that these pieces that you have right now were going to be so valuable and interesting for that matter?
0: Well, what you have just asked me is indeed a delicate question in many ways. Because, if I may say, that I have always had a very strong sense of right and wrong. And I mean that in an aesthetic sense. I have learned at a very early age to trust my instincts of whether something has merit or not. And because I have such high standards, I have never felt that I was the one to be an artist. At the same time, I believe that I know what is good art and what is not. I also came to trust several individuals who could help me in my pursuit of collecting one of whom was a young undergraduate at Harvard College, Mr. Bernard Berenson. He was part of that circle with Charles Eliot Norton. And Mr. Berenson was seeking to further his studies abroad. Now, his family did not have the means to support him while he traveled to Europe for his studies. So when a purse was passed, I wrote a large contribution check so that Mr. Berenson would know to whom to attribute this sum. And then he promptly took off for his studies in Europe. And I lost touch with him for the next decade, during which time he was actually advancing his reputation on the continent as being a connoisseur of European fine art. So that when we reconnected in the 1880s, He has become my principal buyer. Now, there are still two other individuals who have helped me to attain my collection, but they shall remain anonymous because often it is good when one is at these art auctions to not know who is acting on whose behalf.
1: Oh, so you were going out of your way where at the auction, they wouldn't know who was bidding on it because if they thought, that it was you perhaps that they thought they could bid it up more or maybe might even create some competition?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, Tony. Yes. So often I would not necessarily go incognito, but my other two buyers could be incognito so that a sales or a transaction could occur seamlessly. I see. Yeah. In your time, could a woman do that
1: could she go and purchase that art? Is that acceptable?
0: Well, that is a difficult question to say that there were not many women who were there acting on their own behalf. It was becoming a more fashionable thing to do. Some were acting on behalf of their husband. So for Jack and I, it was a shared interest, and we worked together on that. And it okay. was m- my aesthetic sensibilities that Jack trusted as well.
1: Rightfully so. So when you're talking about Bernard Berenson, are you just giving him a check or money and saying, make your best judgment? I I guess I'm just wondering how exactly this went down. It seems like you're giving him a lot of money and you've got to put a lot of trust in him. How did that play out?
0: Well, by and large, our relationship with Mr. Berenson worked well. He and I would exchange telegrams that would at times be flying fast and furiously across the Atlantic, of which works of art would be coming to auction. At the same time, it was because Mr. Berenson dawdled that I lost my opportunity to acquire Gainsborough's Blue Boy, which Mr. Huntington of Pasadena, California, acquired instead. My husband was concerned now and again, that he felt Mr. Berenson would be driving up the price. Of course, when questioned about it directly, Mr. Berenson said that he had the artist's best interest in mind. But then again, Jack and I were aware that Mr. Berenson worked on commission. So of course, he would be interested in a higher price for the artist. It went hand in hand as you can see.
1: Yes. I'm going to guess that Mr. Berenson probably was paid fairly well by you and at the same time maybe didn't want to risk stepping out of bounds, so to speak. Did he ever give you any reason not to trust him?
0: Overall, no. Mr. Berenson's reputation was unscrutable. I really do not have any major complaints other than the fact that I just missed acquiring the Blue Boy. I will say that Mr. Berenson was above board most of the time.
1: If I were your husband, I would have had the exact same thought. I would have been thinking, okay, money corrupts people. (laughs) I mean, he's going to be doing whatever he can to get as much of it as he can, especially when so much is flying back and forth. Were there other pieces besides the Blue Boy that that you missed?
0: Well, I prefer to not even doubt there, Tony. For the most part, I will say that I believe my collection of antiquities, both European and works of American artists, will withstand the test of time.
1: Yeah. So there was a piece that you acquired, and it was it's one of my favorites by Vermeer called The Concert. If my study is correct, this is one of the first pieces that you You had collected along the way. I'm sure you you remember it. And if my numbers are right, I think that you purchased this piece for $6,000, which would be a lot in your time. That piece today is worth $250 million. Mm,
0: That sounds fascinable.
1: I just want to say that as far as investors in history, I think you might be number one because that is a pretty solid return on your
0: money. And I, I guess I'm just wondering what you think about that. Well, I have many thoughts, but at the same time, I am speechless, gratified and speechless to hear your last comment.
1: Well, how about a piece by Titian, I think, called Rape of Europa?
0: Oh, yes. One of my favorites, indeed. What about it makes it your favorite? Well, it is difficult to describe and to put into specific words other than it is that sense of feeling, the sensation that it gives of the Rite of Spring, of the the Maiden with the Bull, just, it is sublime. It is truly one of my favorite paintings in the entire collection. Do you recall what you paid for that one? No, I do not. Were there any other pieces that
1: stuck out to you that they were just important Mm -hmm. to you in some way?
0: Oh, absolutely. Many, of course. Relics and artifacts. There is one painting, an early Sargent work. Of course, I have always been very fascinated, if you will, by my portrait by John Singer Sargent. But there was a painting that Mr. Sargent did, even before he did my portrait, called El Jaleo. Now, El Jaleo is a scene in a Spanish cafe of the Spanish dancer, the flamenco dancer Carmen Sita. And she is in the limelight of sorts. It is a very dimly lit cafe with a a row of flamenco guitars aligned against the back wall. Now, that painting had been in the collection of the same relative, Thomas Jefferson Coolidge, who had been the ambassador in Paris at one point in his career. And I so coveted that early Sargent work that one day I asked Mr. Coolidge if I might borrow his El Haleo because I knew that Mr. Coolidge had a reputation of being a very generous soul. So, of course, Mr. Coolidge had El Haleo transported to my Fenway court, and once that painting was there, I quickly had it installed on the wall. I also arranged for an electrician to come and install a row of five lights along the floor pointing on a diagonal up so that when the lights were on the electric lights would illuminate el jaleo in the way that the artist had experienced this scene in a spanish cafe in salamanca and then once that was complete I invited Mr. Coolidge to come to Fenway Court to partake of this spectacle, and he was so taken by having Sargent's painting properly illuminated that Mr. Coolidge simply gave me the painting, and that was just earlier this year.
1: I secretly think that you had worked this out all in your head, and you knew it was going to end like that. It's a beautiful description of how you've displayed this. When you talk about your portrait, so the person that did El Haleo is the same person that did your portrait? I didn't realize that. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yes, indeed. Mr. John Singer Sargent, who is another dear friend. I also allow him to stay in my McKnight room on the first floor, and he has taken a commission or two in my gothic room on the third floor there is a a portrait of Mrs. Warren Fisk and her daughter which he is doing it will hang one day at the Museum of Fine Art in Boston you will recognize the stained glass window behind the mother and daughter setting which will be in my gothic room so here you have this
1: home just stacked from floor to ceiling the chairs the tapestries the statues Poles with gold things on the top of them. Paintings that are priceless now. I understand that you have this will about how the museum should be
0: treated once you pass. Can you tell me about that? Certainly, Tony. Of course, I have given great thought to who my successor will be. Because I have also designed an ironclad will in which states, that not one object or artifact is to be moved at any point for perpetuity. Now, you can imagine that a clause like that is quite intimidating, and for good reason. It is in large part because I do not believe or trust that anyone else will have the same sense and sensibility as I do with this art. And it is clearly stated, nothing is to be moved. At the same time, I have had to, and I still am, considering who has enough backbone to enforce this ironclad will. That's a big ask. Well, it is. And I had hoped that a dear friend, Joseph Lyndon Smith, who is an Egyptologist and a painter of frescoes in his own right, I had hoped that he would be my successor of my house museum. But he recently informed me that he and his dear wife, Corinne, are expecting their third child. And, well, I just cannot imagine having three young ones traipsing through Fenway Court. But also, Mr. Lyndon Smith and his wife are planning to settle and develop an artist colony in southern New Hampshire. So their plans are taking them in another direction. But I now have my eye on a particular young gentleman who has risen through the ranks of the Museum of Fine Art, has very high standards, and whom my husband as well has held in high esteem, Mr. Morris Carter. Now, when I asked Mr. Carter if he would endeavor to become the successor of my house museum, well, he has actually dodged that question for the moment. But what he has consented to do was to become my first official biographer. So Mr. Carter and I have been conducting numerous conversations such as this. And though at the same time, I will say that I have been burning various letters and memorabilia in my fireplaces at Fenway Court. Because there are just some things that you do not wish even your biographer
1: to know. You know, it's interesting because you display so much of your feeling for all of us to see. And yet there is this private side of you that we're all wondering what is going on, which actually raises the question. I, I had heard that there were secret rooms in the museum. Are there secret rooms in the museum?
0: Well, all I can say about that is there is this Asian room that I have alluded to earlier in our conversation, Tony, that will display the various works from miniatures to large laughing Buddha statues that Jack and I had collected from our travels throughout Asia over 25 years ago. But I am not certain if I will ever open that room to the public. So it is not that rooms are secret, but more that I shall not make them public. I see.
1: So speaking of the names of the rooms, when you go to each room there's people that will listen to this that have never heard of the museum because they live too far away that will go there because they'll hear this and they're like i have to see this place and anybody listening i am telling you this will not be a letdown for you it will be one of the greatest experiences of your life but as you go from room to room they each could be their own museum they could be standalone museums and they all have names so And I'm wondering if you named all these, you've got the Raphael room, you've got the little salon, you've got the yellow room, which sounds very bland for a name and the blue room, but then you've got the Spanish cloister and the Spanish chapel. Did you name all these or is this something that we did later?
0: Oh, no, Tony. I absolutely named each room. And then there is the Rembrandt room. Do not forget It's not so much the room name for the artist, but more the artist who inspired me. By his early self-portrait, which I obtained about the same time that Mr. Sargent did my self-portrait, that I fully realized that my dream of creating a house museum was coming to fruition. It was important to me to highlight each of the rooms with the most visible piece, if you will, by naming it as such. But I I also have attributed to different colors. There is the blue room and the yellow room as well.
1: I would have guessed that you would name them because it's eclectic and there's just nothing that's the same. It's 20 different museums in one Mm -hmm. building. It's so wonderful. What are your feelings about the public? Are you doing this for you? Are you doing it for the public? Are you doing this for your legacy? What's the public's role in all of this?
0: Well, that gets back to my very early dream or vision that I had as a young schoolgirl on my grand tour of Europe with my parents, was that I wished to create a house museum that would be dedicated to the city in which I would dwell for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. Now, in designing my house museum, I took modest steps in the first several years. My house museum is open two weeks of every year, two of the holiest weeks of every year. The week of Easter, which is a movable feast, but often coincides with my birthday. And the other week is Christmas week. But then I encountered a rather strange situation where a young girl, I shall not call her a lady. I caught her in the stairwell examining one of my Flemish tapestries. At first, I thought it was to just observe the thread count, but upon closer glance, I realized that she had a small scissors in her hand and that she was about to cut a hole in my fabric. So you can imagine that I quickly escorted her down the stairs and out the front door. That is when it occurred to me that people do not always appreciate something that is free. So I have decided as of last year to charge admission of $1 per person, which I hope you do not consider to be too extensive, but I believe has helped to keep the riffraff out.
1: Wow, you had to be horrified when you walk and see somebody with scissors about to, uh, that's, un that is, is—it's. Yes. I can't even imagine yes. that.
0: Yes, uh, that, I was aghast, absolutely aghast that somebody would have the audacity to try to desecrate a, a house museum that was willed to the city of Boston. So it was only open, you only opened it to the public two weeks out of the year? Yes. Tony, that, that is correct, because I was still coming to terms with how best to display the artifacts that I had collected. So I wished to have times in which I would roam through the house and just be able to open it for small concerts in, in the music room. So I was often entertaining, but to open it to the public was a whole other matter. And in time, I do intend to increase the number of days when I have open admission.
1: I was wondering if that was something in your will, that it could only be opened a certain number of days. And I I will tell you that your will, by the way, you said you made that thing ironclad. Well, as time passed and they needed to make changes, there are changes that they did make that they absolutely had to make. But I'm telling you what you did the right thing protecting it so that it would stay the way that it was so they could experience your vision because to make changes that had to be made with time it was very difficult to get it done (laughs) because there were people fighting for what you wanted based on what your
0: will said that is why my successor will need to have a very solid backbone You know, this gift
1: that you've given to the people of Boston and now to the world, some people have called you one of the seven wonders of Boston. And I'm sure that's because of this gift, this gift that you've given them. But it's also because you keep everybody on their toes wondering what you're going to do next. And I heard once that at the opening that you served champagne and donuts. Is that true?
0: Yes, Tony, it is. It is true. Because that was two of my favorite foods that I could put out for everyone to have. Because the true gift of that evening of my grand opening on New Year's Day 1903 was the concert that there were select members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, whom I handpicked myself under the direction of Wilhelm Garricki, who played starting at 9pm sharp for precisely 45 minutes. And during that time, mind you, the music room was on two floors, but I had the openings, the entranceway to the courtyard concealed. So no one saw what was beyond those curtains, only what was in the music room. And once the music had concluded, then these Curtains were struck down and people were able to view the spectacle that I had created in the courtyard with these freshly bloomed flowers that were in full bloom in midwinter Boston. There was a lit candle underneath that wreath that I designed that has the phoenix, which bears my motto, own Plaisir. It is my pleasure. And all of Boston did rave.
1: When you were talking about the courtyard, the last time that I was there and this didn't happen the first time I was there, but the last time I was there, we were walking around and I'm mesmerized. I just feel like I'm like, I don't know. I, I just I'm just mesmerized That's with everything that I see. and I, And then all of a sudden we started to hear what sounded like singing. And it was coming from the courtyard, but it felt like it was everywhere. And I couldn't mm. figure out if it was in front of me or it was behind me. And it was so beautiful. I thought this could not be live. This had to be some sort of recording that was playing. And I, I tried to figure out where I was. And I weaved back through the maze wherever I was to get to where I could see the courtyard. And in the courtyard is this beautiful woman standing on one end, just singing. It just mm. sounds like like art coming. And she's got all these loose fabrics that are kind of flowing around her body as she's moving. And I could see you putting on that sort of thing in your time. And that sort of thing happens every day there.
0: Well, this is so thrilling to hear you say, Tony, because what you've just described to me assures me that visitors to my house museum can and will be transported to other realms. That are larger than our imaginations. And at the same time, we will open our senses to what is truly beautiful in this world. That is exactly how
1: it feels. You have been so generous with your time. I have just a few more questions I want to ask you. Some of them are really short and absurd because they may not be true. Uh, One is a little bit more serious even though I secretly think this happened, but you're probably going to want to punch me in the face when I say it. But just know I'm, I think it's hilarious if it happened. So I understand there was some sort of uh, custom scandal.
0: Can you tell me anything about that? That was the most thwarted affair, which I really had nothing to do with the onset. I was truly someone caught up in a very terrible situation, which portrayed me in a very bad light. Too long of a story to go into great detail, but let me give just a short synopsis. Yeah. It was on my last trip to Europe, just prior to the opening of my house museum, with which I acquired a few more artifacts. There was a fresco of an Italian artist, and there were some of these Flemish tapestries. Well, there were enough artifacts that they filled three crates of antiquities. And I was aware when I was in Italy at that point that the Italian government was beginning to crack down on the export of antiquities from their country. But I wished rather than to have a warehouse to pay rent, while I, I had to make haste home. So I decided to bring these three crates with me While I made a brief stop in London. While in London, I stayed with, oh, her name was Miss Emily Chadburn of Chicago, who persuaded me that if she could just borrow or use some of these artifacts to decorate her home, that she would be able to transport them back stateside once this law had been decided. So, As I say, I needed to make haste back to Boston to oversee the first of the garden prize ceremonies. I had put up a purse of $100 to select five of the best gardens from the three Boston neighborhoods, the West End, the North End, and the South End. And I had to be there to hand envelopes of $1 to $5 each to those 15 Garden Prize winners. Well, the Garden Prize ceremony went off without a hitch. It was not until the end of the summer when I got a telephone call from the customs department saying that I was part of an unscrupulous scandal of trying to undervalue antiquities being brought into this country. Well, it took almost a week for me to track down Miss Chadburn, who was very difficult to understand at first. Between sobs, I (laughs) managed to piece together the story she was telling me, that she was suddenly called back to Chicago to care for her ailing father and decided that she needed to strike her lodging in London and then decided since she had used these artifacts as house furnishings, that she would declare them as household goods. Oh. Rather, he declared a very low valuation, which was the first glimpse. It made one of the customs officials suspicious that the crates these size would just be simply household goods. So he proceeded to open the first crate and find these Flemish tapestries and. Well, he opened each of the crates to find that the contents valued more than 10 times the declared amount. I see. So as a result, there were hearings all through the winter. And even Mr. Rockefeller has begun to collect a sizable collection of rare books and antiquities himself. He wrote a letter on my behalf, but the customs officials were not willing. They were willing to listen to him, but they wish to make an example of me. So I've been fined a very high sum. It's a structured payment plan to pay a monthly fee to the federal government for this. But I do not wish to reveal more than that, other than it's a very unfortunate circumstance There's somebody who thought that they were doing me a favor, but clearly they were not.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I can just picture these custom agents opening these boxes and expecting forks and spoons and lamps and getting a little bit more than they bargained for.
0: I do believe that because I am a woman,
1: that the customs officials wish
0: to make an example of me.
1: There's no question. They, it, Rockefeller, they If it, it was the same situation. They would just ask for some money. He would have paid them. And nobody's, they're not going to try to bully him, but they probably were trying to bully you. Yes, I do yeah. believe.
0: But we, we shall not... Diverge any further on that?
1: Yeah, no problem. And e- even if that had just been an outright you trying to skirt customs, I mean, I ask that question because I know that there are sometimes you do what it takes to get done. I understand in Fenway Court that you didn't get any building permits. Is that true?
0: Now that I will say yes, touche, Tony. <laughs> that is true because. My architect, for one, and various other construction people were trying to encourage me to use this new fabrication called steel as part of the foundation of my house museum. But I was adamant and I held firm that my house museum was to be built on wood pilings, just as those palazzos in Venice had been constructed centuries before. And if they withstood the test of time, I felt assured that Fenway Court would as well.
1: In true Venice form, I heard that you can be kind of a practical joker, and that you had a party once where you had everybody wear mustaches, including yourself. And I also heard you wore a headband to a the Boston Orchestra that said Red Sox on it. Or is any of that true? Oh,
0: you Red Sox! Yes, that is true, Tony. I am a very avid baseball fan. And part of my reasoning in selecting the Fens of Boston to develop my house museum on the Fens was because my dear friend and near neighbor at Green Hill, Mr. Frederick Law Olmsted, the landscape architect, encouraged me in that direction. You see Fenway Park, the baseball Field is soon to be developed and opened. And Mr. Olmsted has also advised me that a number of higher educational and uh, artistic organizations will be designed and developed along the Fenway. And he, Mr. Olmsted, is designing the Emerald Necklace, which is a series of interconnecting parkways that starts north of the city of Boston at a place called Belle Isle Marsh. And that corridor runs through Boston Garden and along the fence, all the way to Arnold Arboretum. My house museum will be but a jewel upon the strand of the emerald necklace. People
1: have referred to you as a collector, a philanthropist, a patron of the arts. Would you use any of those to describe yourself, or would there be something else that you would like to be known as?
0: Well, all three of those roles are apropos, I will say. The philanthropy is what I do most quietly. I often give sums of money to my parish priest. I am a devout member of the Church of the Advent. And although my Fenway Court has a chapel on the third floor, I am able to have a Cowley father come and say mass there almost on a weekly basis and to hear my confession. And I will also ask the Cowley father, Father Grafton, if he can identify individuals in our larger community who might be in need. And I will also give sums of money to be distributed anonymously and also through my dear niece, Olga Gardner. She is involved as a volunteer at the Boston Children's Floating Hospital. And I have given sums of money to the hospital through her.
1: So philanthropy is very important to you.
0: Yes, it is, because this life is so short and not everyone is given the same opportunities. So I I wish to, for those who need widows, and orphans, and any organization who needs it. Very admirable.
1: I wonder your friends, what they call you. Do people call you Mrs. Gardner? Do your friends call you by a different nickname?
0: My husband called me Belle, B-E-L-E. And my nephews, while we were raising them, referred to me as Auntie Belle. And I also will go by my full Isabella as well. I believe it is a, a very special name. And so any person who has given that name will have free admission to my house museum for perpetuity. Is that right? (laughs) Yes, that is. That is a fact, Tony.
1: Oh, good for you. That's fantastic. Well, Mrs. Gardner, I thank you so much for your time and your contribution. You have truly left a jewel behind for us. It is something that will be a part of my life forever, Is there anything that you'd like to say last before we're done?
0: Tony, I thank you as well. And I can say that it has been a delight speaking with you today.
1: It's a good thing that Isabella was long gone before the theft happened because it might have broken her. The attachment that she had to these pieces and the experience that she was trying to create for her community was the culmination of her life's work. Yet, after being to the museum several times, I can tell you, her vision is completely intact. The empty frames scattered around the different rooms take nothing away from the atmosphere she created more than a hundred years ago. As you walk through the building, it tells a story of her travels, the contribution that she made to her city and the world, and of a life lived at a rate and intensity that makes other lives seem pale, thin, and shadowy. As of this recording, tickets to the museum are no longer a dollar. They're more like 20 bucks. And one more thing, as she mandated so many years ago, if your name happens to be Isabella, spelled with one S and two L's, You can visit the museum for free. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.